friends, welcome back to the Film Alchemist Podcast, the show where we look at movies we love, break them apart to find out what gives them their magic. I'm your host, Josh Griffey, joined as always by my slightly off, very monologue, but devious uh, child friend. You know, eventually, you know, eventually you're going to scream break and it's just going to be like an anthrax song. Like we're never going to hear actually the rest <laughs> of it. <laughs> I'm always down to fucking uh, kick out all the novel ideas of us having smart movie brains and just fucking <laughs> full on pretend to do metal riffs. <laughs> also, and also my name is Alex Dandino. <laughs> Yeah, this was a hard one for me to come up with a, a sidekick tag. Sorry, that was way uh, too that was way too much emotion in my voice. Let me try it again, Alex Dandino. Yeah, you need to be yes. like off-puttingly polite, monotone. Uh, we'll get to it. So today, this is this month, guys. As you know, if you're a listener of the show, if you're a new listener, welcome. Sorry about all the the anthrax and pro wrestling screams. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this month, the pod stuffs your stocking. We went to you, the alchemist, and said, please, guys, uh, give us, sacrifice your titles to the movie gods, and we'll pick some uh, some willing Fey Rays, if you will. We picked our three favorites, uh, no, four favorites, and I added Rare Export. So now we're into the fan picks. I guess, in a way, you're stuffing our stocking. Should have thought of that. This like week's entry. Yeah. <laughs> It's a mutual stuffing, the way it should be. This week's entry from our friend uh, Heath Benfield. He is one of my all-time favorite guys to talk movies with, and it's mostly because we can look at each other with all complete honesty and sincerity, no bullshit, and just know that we absolutely disagree on everything about every movie. (laughs) That's how it feels all the time, and it leads to really fun conversations, right? Uh, Yeah, we're kind of like... I'm like Sherlock, and he's like a a fucking poor man's Moriarty. No, I'm just kidding, Heath. I'm just fucking with you. There it is, man. There it is. Shots I mean, fired. maybe more of a Watson, where he knows he's had, but he wants to. He's like, my doctor's in my title. I should be able to hold out. But damn, this Sherlockin, this yeah. Sherlockin. I'm You're like Sherlock, and he's like Watson, actually writing the story itself. That's what's going on. You're you're living it. He's just he's writing. It. <laughs> He's just a fucking poser. That's what we're trying to say. Let's just beat his street cred down to nothing. No. No. Uh, I so actually I love like Heath, Heath a lot. And I knew Heath would come with a really interesting suggestion. Yeah. And he didn't let us down. So today we will be covering Yorgos Lanthimos. Wow. Nice job. I, I Did I get so. it? I think Holy you might have gotten it. Nice job. I, I'm giving myself at least a 70% chance that I said a name right on the show. Uh, I think you're almost there. You're fine. Okay, so Yorgos Lanthimos uh, film, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I actually really like Lanthimos flicks. I'm really excited for The Favorite, which is out in theaters now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like The the Lobster. He does He does these... It, it's, the, it's so funny, because I'm like kind of staggering now. Like, How do I best describe what I feel with his movies? Yeah. And I think the best I can point to is it... It seems like they always pitch it as a movie I definitely want to see, told in a way that I'm not sure that I enjoy, and then I get home and I can't let go of the films. Yeah, like, I would call the movies he makes just, like, disarming. Like, you think you're going to walk in and see a certain kind of... Like, I remember, like, the first movie I saw of his was The Lobster, and Andrea and I were actually really excited to see it. We went to see it in the theater, and I mean... I had no idea that's what it was going to be. And it was just so like, I, the, the whole theater was sitting there the entire time. Like, are we allowed to laugh during this movie or should we be like morbid or just curious? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to laugh the entire time. Like that when movie I was saw, legitimately funny. Yeah. When I saw a killing of the sacred deer in theaters, right. in Hollywood Arclight actually is where I saw it. So it wasn't a packed theater. Everyone there is like pretty down for whatever we were going to see. Right, right. And I would say this movie, A Ghost Story with Casey Affleck and Hereditary are the three like aw- most awkward laughing theaters I've ever been in where people are just uncomfortable and like, I don't know what's happening and I need some relief. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like The Lobster is a great example of what Lanthimos does, right? The yeah. the pitch for that movie that sounds like, like an absolutely it's fascinating like, you sci-fi. You don't think you can do... 
to me, like, yeah, like the style with which he operates is very specific. And I think it's really interesting. Like, you don't think besides like the lobster, which is so specific to the way he makes movies, you think that that's just going to be the thing he does. Like, that's his flick. Like, that's mm-hmm. his style. But I well, think, he takes the high sci-fi concept and throws that shit out about halfway yeah. through the movie. <laughs> yeah, it literally is completely meaningless. It's fascinating how he does it too. Like, and this is something he kind of does in Sacred Deer too. Because I thought, like, I'm really excited to see the favorite too. I fucking love how this guy makes movies. Like, I, he's rapidly becoming one of my favorite directors. But I mean, like, with that cast too, like, what the fuck? Dude? Right? I'm yeah. Soaked. But then, like, Sacred Deer takes this like whatever it was, sort of the way the Lobster was, which was. You're brought in by this sort of high concept sci-fi, and lit- yeah, you're right. Like, probably, I'd say, thirty minutes into the movie, they literally throw out the entire playbook, and they're like, "Let's just make a different movie alt- altogether." And you're like, "Yeah, all right, sure." And well, this this is a great example. I mean, this is a very classic tale, right? This oh, is, it's- this is a this is just a very basic revenge story. Yeah. Um, I was even reading. I was telling you, I was reading about it from the show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this has roots all the way back to Agamemnon, right? The killing of the sacred deer. I was like, that's such a you specific title. I'll even look that up. Right, right? right. Agamemnon accidentally murders some of uh, Artemis's uh, beloved deer, and she demands blood. Right? This is straight up revenge. A she story man- that she rem- every demands, human is known and has told. She forever. demands Agamemnon's daughter in in penance. Yeah, it's just, uh, but this this is the thing, right? So it's a straight up revenge tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way he tells it is so different. It feels you you. It feels like it's trying to grow and mutate into something else. Yeah. So that at a certain point, you almost forget you're watching a revenge movie. In fact, the the break to revenge, right? It's not revealed to us that this is a revenge movie until 53 minutes yeah. into the movie. I mean, that is normally your act two jump point, right? Which would be between 20 and 30 minutes in, even for the most ballsy filmmakers. This right. shit lets you kind of stew in what the fuck is happening for 50 yeah. minutes. I mean, this movie is a very, it's a very simple story to me. Like, there's not a lot of complication, and I kind of love that. Like, it's it's this thing we always talk about on the show, and the thing we always talk about when it comes to, like, filmmaking. Like, Griffey and I always make this joke about, like, there's absolutely no movie that needs to be more than 90 minutes long. Because, like, it's not that difficult to, like, get to your plot, get to your old thing. Yorgos <laughs> Lanthimos, so this movie, like, Killing of a Sacred Deer does such a good job of actually holding my attention that this movie lasts two hours and one minute. I checked on my – because it's on Amazon Prime right now. I checked on my account. Last two hours and one minute, I was fucking hooked the entire flick. Like, there's not a moment I'm standing there not interested in the movie because he draws that out. Like, he draws it out entirely, and he almost restructures a classic storytelling structure by pulling it out to, like, 53 minutes and then literally dropping the bomb. And then the bomb he yeah. drops, though, is so – awkward and inconsequential but also well, like means everything kids actually he's like i know we only have a couple minutes so i'll rattle this off as yeah, fast as i can it's insane uh, what i think is funny though right because when i left the theater with this movie i remember being extremely frustrated with it yeah i, I was just too. like why 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 like i just kept asking myself like why that choice why that choice and it, it felt like it bugged me because again it's one of those you're like i love this premise and i feel like the ending um the ending kind of takes off at a point and becomes this really slick descent into madness that you're like, all right, this feels more like what I'm used to. And there was something about that opening that just bothered me. So watching it again uh, at home, you know, I, I was I was focused a little more on kind of the 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 tricks he was employing to get us interested in that long fucking opening. And it, it worked for me in a way in this it it has this almost shining aspect right where it's a lot of he does a lot of things like he'll have these really long tracking shots that are only following mundane activities yeah in mundane conversations right like the two doctors talking about their watch oh i have this watch it goes to this depth and it's it's one of those you're everyone who's like a script reader right would be like why are they doing this like it's not moving forward cut this out but when you right. watch it for the second time, you start to see these microaggressions everywhere, right? Like him having this American Psycho moment with this doctor, you know that him and this anesthesiologist now are a little bit butting heads. Yeah. And you see this four or five times in the movie and him and the kid. 
so you see a lot of that. You see these kind of weird shrill violins and almost operatic music to cover up mundane activities. So it feels yeah. like he's wasting a lot of our times. But what I think it's doing is is setting this table of unease because while you're watching something as mundane as two doctors talking about a watch, the way he employs the music and the kind of uncomfortable, sterile, wide shots and environments, you you are always unsettled, right? Yeah. Well, no, this movie, like, lives in the wide shot. Like, that's the whole point. Like, every time he cuts to a wide shot, the idea is to take you out of the moment so that you see everything. Like, yes. From... Like the one that is like the most like brutal and the one that I think is probably some of the finest filmmaking in the movie. It's a single shot, but it's the one right after they take Bob to the hospital. They try and take him down the escalator and he falls down. Oh, see, I love that shot, too, because it plays this thing right where they do the wide shots where you're put in, you know, a lot of white, especially wide shot from above. Right. Scorsese would call that the God shot. Mm -hmm. Right. This is the omnipotent power looking down. And it feels that way, right? Like when you watch it with his son, Bob, it feels like a smiting moment because the doctor's yeah, like, no, totally. oh, you're, you're cool, dude. You're all good. And he gets down the escalator seemingly fine. And someone's just like, bang. Yeah. And you watch him drop and you know now that things are more serious. Mm -hmm. But they do like the first time we see the family, right? They're having the kind of SNL family dinner. I drive a Dodge Stratus. <laughs> yeah, very much so. It's up in the corner and a little off kilter, right? The family's pushed all the way to the right of the screen yeah he leaves a lot of open on part of the screen where it, it almost feels paranormal activity where you're like what is over there yeah so the camera does a lot and a lot of this walking through the mundane right the tracking the shining tracking shots and the kind of like the, yeah. the unusual and i mean the other thing too is it's not what, what this does for me though to finish that point what this does for me is it it takes you into these people that have a stepford ruse right like they they have this perfect life set up of two doctors two perfect kids that are excelling this and that oh we're putting on ties to go get an award those tracking shots uh while on mundane it adds danger to seemingly benign aspects there's right. this there's this scary voyeuristic quality and that the tracking shot and the music i think is setting you up for these kind of big explosive scenes at the end yeah, I was going to say I think that those tracking shots what's interesting is they're not these like they're like what you try to go for when you're on set is like you really want these like you set up the dolly track and you level it out and you want these really smooth movements. Like you don't want to notice that the camera's there. The thing that I like about the way that these work, and I don't know if you noticed this, but especially the second time we get this big long tracking shot down the hallway, it's when uh it's when uh, Martin meets Steven for the first time in the hospital. He's like, hey, you, you, you need to call me before you come right. here. That yeah. tracking shot is not steady. Like, it's almost rushed and it's a little shaky. And immediately when they turn the camera into the to go into the clinic, the camera, you can feel the camera operator pulling the camera off the dolly and putting it back onto his shoulder. Like, that's the kind of stuff that is really specific and draws attention to itself. And you'd think it would be a mistake, but... I agree. I think these sort of things are meant – the reason it's not perfect is meant to put you in unease and meant to put you a little bit on danger's edge because you don't know what's going to happen in the next scene. You have no idea where this movie's going other than the fact that this kid's a little weird, that guy's a little weird, and this whole thing right. is just kind of fucked. Exactly. It's, it's this constant repartee of extremely monotonous, almost sickening uh, courtesies, right? Right. Like, oh, excuse me for being late. Like, they, they do these, like, back and forth that are just, they, they make you sick. Like, honestly, the first time I went in the theater, I was just like, get to the fucking point. I don't care about watches. Like, god damn. Yeah. I was so, like, just getting, like, let's get to it. Because I, I wasn't in yet, right? Right. I was spoiled by what I had read and what I thought the movie would be. Mm -hmm. And it was so playing against my expectations, I wasn't down for it like I was this time, right? Yeah. Which was a nice, a nice turnaround. Because... I'm with you. The the little bit of uneasiness, almost Evil Dead, right? Like it, The yeah. Shining does that to me where it gives you this big cabin fever look. Like in this empty right. space, right, there is only room for madness that we fill. Right. Uh, this kind of feels the opposite, right? Where this is uh, the camera's not following you on your own descent into madness. This is something is actually ominously right. following well, it's you. Also and so unsteady camera, and they do it a lot too, where there's a lot of push-ins and pull-ins. Yeah. Where they actually match cut them 
from piece to piece, which gives it this uh, omniscient dark god kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like we're always slowly pressing in towards you, yeah. No matter what, and it it really is a a cool effect because I, I go back and forth. Did it? Did it? Is this the best way to present the opening of this movie? And I, I would say. I would argue probably not because, again, how many people left the theater like me and your first reaction is, well, that was a lot of fucking wasted time and I felt uncomfortable, but what did I gain? Right. And they never make it back to the movie. I appreciate it on the second time. I don't know that I did the first time. You know, but, I mean, that's that's the thing when you have a guy who is so so willing to make us uncomfortable and not give us what we want. Yeah. Uh, I also enjoy that as well, man. You know, I think that... I think I would disagree with you a little bit. I think the beginning of the movie itself is so arresting in general that because right off the bat, honestly, like to me, that whole entire movie sets you on edge. Like it stays in the mm. black for quite some time. Like it yeah. opens up with a little bit of opening credits and then it just holds on a black screen. You have no idea what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden out of fucking nowhere, there's the first shot. And it's literally a close up of an open exposed heart during surgery. And you're like, whoa wasn't expect you have to adjust like because you know people are not used to seeing that kind of thing even all the blood and guts and gore in movies you're not used to seeing oh dude it's weird because i watch horror movies i can't do any like skateboarder broken bone i can't do yeah uh, exactly surgery. my wife works in medical and she loves surgery shows and it makes me want to fucking throw up and that's even the though first i'll thing watch you see like in this movie. blood rage all day <laughs> Exactly. And that's the first thing you see yeah, in this movie is so this bad. person is some exposed heart. And you're like, whoa, like that to me is the like when I was like, I was watching it uh, today and I'm like that it to me is immediately the first. That is the first shake off you get like you're like, OK, like I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in this movie. But I do know that like right off the bat, I am uncomfortable with this close up of a beating heart mid surgery like that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. But I think well, the other I mean, thing too. Here's something: the first time I felt truly uncomfortable in the movie is when him and Nicole Kidman go to fuck. Right? Yeah. This movie, what the? By fuck, the way, man. the cast is fucking astounding in this movie. Yeah. And it's weird because it it feels like Yorgos's thought style is kneecapping them at times, right? Where it's making them seem not as impressive as they could be. Yeah. But the cast is so good. But that first fuck when she just lays down like a cadaver. And he kind of inspects her and right. sniffs her and then drags her down. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, I would guess this well, is not how they were fucking in the Brady Bunch. Maybe because they had a bunch of no. kids and whatever. Like, maybe they had to get fricky. But I was like, this is I – I was immediately off. <laughs> but, I mean, the other thing, too, that I noticed is he's like general anesthesia. He, she asks general anesthesia and he goes, yes. And she lays down and I was like, what does that mean? And then he starts doing it like – Oh, that is fucked, man. Like these people are yeah. not right. Like something is tremendously broken within these two people where <laughs> she can't move so he can get a fucking erection. Like this is some fucked up shit. I also will say the first thing I see in the movie, the first character to see in the movie is uh Colin Farrell and Bill Camp. Bill Camp in any movie means I'm watching it. That fucking guy could literally be in a tidy bull ad and be pushing anything and I'd be totally fucking invested. I love that yeah. actor, man. He is incredible. I, yeah, I agree with you. I think he's kind of this on the rise character actor, like that we'll be seeing for a long time. Uh, and he has a really interesting yeah, role in this movie. But okay, he so does. Here, here's a big question to kick it off, right? Because we kind of talked about the weird style and the the choices he's making that seem to be opposing forces that kind of work for you and worked more for me this time. When you first watched this movie, I don't know if this was your first viewing or it's not. My second. Um, what did you think before it's revealed? What did you think the relationship was between Colin Farrell and the, the weird kid? Uh, what's this kid's name? Barry, Barry Keegan. Is that how Keoghan. you said Keoghan? The kid from Dunkirk. Um, <laughs> you know, he's also the kid who's going to be why and, um, Yorick and why yeah. the last man. Um, he's Yorick. I, the, the relationship between them, I honestly had no idea. Like, I was like, this is just, like, some stray that this guy's picked up. Like, I had no clue what the deal was. Like, I was yeah, just like, and it's weird because I vaguely knew what the movie was about, and I still never fully got what was happening. Yeah, I think until 
Until, like, obviously, like, Colin Farrell goes through, like, three different versions of the truth. Like, at first it starts off with just, like, he's just some rando. And then it's like, oh, well, he was the kid of a patient or something like that. He was the kid of a patient. And then finally it gets, like, fucking revealed. And you're like, oh, wow. This is very different than what I expected. So, like, it's weird because now then I watched it again and I'm looking at it a little differently. I'm like, this is such a bizarre sort of like mentor mentee thing. Like it's not even that it's literally a guy who, and this is the thing that like factors into the movie. And again, the second time I watched it, like it made so much more sense was this is not like any sort of like friendly relationship. This is literally strictly born out of guilt. It's fascinating. And that's true. And I was with that until he invited him to his house. That decision when he said, I think you should come meet my kids. <laughs> that was my attempt at Colin Farrell's accent. I know. I nailed it. Let's move on. Let's not let's not spoon good. over my skills. <laughs> uh, sort of New Zealand. I, I you know, was baffled nice. by that choice. Because that, to me, throws me off the scent of... That reminds me of Saul, right? When they do the classic cheating of, oh, I'm just a, a message boy, but I hold a gun to your head and fucking listen to your heartbeat and get a heart on doing that. Uh, this felt weird like why would you invite him over right why would you ask him to stay uh this is where we get one of the saddest meat cutes ever where he's like i brought a keychain with music notes can you sing to me no right. let me see your body hairs it's like it's like a bunch of like fucking uh what are those remember those things called simons when we were kids yeah no that's exactly i mean but that's- it's like a bunch of simons talking and it's it's so strange and they go on a but that's how the entire a movie walk is. and she's singing to him like this is the saddest grossest meat cute yeah and then colin Farrell's that's like, how the yeah, just stay at our house and in his that's wife's how the whole not even like is. yo what the fuck everything is monotone in this movie it's fascinating like this is like a colin farrell thing too is and i think that's why yorgos lanthimos loves this guy's Colin Farrell is so good at this monotone, but like at the same time, he has this just like super expressive face. Like his eyes are the things that's doing all the acting in this movie. Like the words are literally like, it seems like he just like looked at the script, threw it away and then did the scene. But like his face is what really is like capturing everything. Like, well, he does a great job of, you can see this kind of sea of worry underneath, right? Like Nicole Kidman in this movie is the master of this, right? Yeah. Like there is a scene when the, the daughter falls down and she goes into the hospital, right? Oh, so the daughter's God, singing, yeah. she falls down, and they cut to Nicole Kidman, and she's doing this thing that I fucking love, right? Because it's really easy. You see it a lot on TV, the big cry. Like, ah! Nicole Kidman is so fucking good at the small cry. The the small moment, like, I'm crying, but I'm trying not to. My world is devastated, but I'm trying to somehow piece by piece put it together in my mind, and it's it's this ultra devastating, uh, if not micro version of the the cry yeah. that I so fucking love. And Nicole Kidman, that scene, and then she hugs the other doctor, which I was like, what? But uh, I, I love that in this movie. And this is one of the things, Yorgos' th- style, like it doesn't always work for me in The Lobster, per se. That you're kind of like, all right, well, it's like a weird post-apocalyptic world where someone's willing to become a lobster, so maybe. Right, right. Uh, this one works when you put it in the context of they're all doing this, it reminded me a little of Deadwood, right? Where people are trying to use politeness and this and that for this grungy, dirty, terrible world. They're sure, in. Sure. Uh, so you get like, okay. And Colin Farrell does a great job of that. Of trying to like portray this doctor, right? But we know he's got a drinking problem. We know he, he killed a guy possibly because of his drinking, right? Um, that he's taken this kid on and is kind of trying to bribe him. So even me, and that's the thing I know a lot of people would say, oh, he invited him to the house so that he would see his family and not try to fuck it up. And I'm like, dude, that's the worst plan ever. Like, hey, kid whose dad I murdered because I'm a lush, come see my perfect life and house. <laughs> and, he, and also there's a weird thing where people keep talking about his daughter's first period. And I was like, ew, stop. Yeah, what the fuck? That was but the thing. Felt, when she that, volunteered that, that information, is, like when they're yeah. talking about puberty, like, I've got my first period. It's like, is that a thing you're supposed to brag about when you're a kid? Well, no, he reveals it first at the fucking award ceremony to his bald friend. He's like, oh, yeah, things yeah. are good. I walked the dog today. P.S. My, my daughter's bleeding. And it's like, and he's like, mm, very good, very good. It's like, what is happening? <laughs> but uh, oh, good, good. Yes, yeah, yes, I yes. think this scene. I love that scene because it's this kind of crashing of worlds, right? It's like, here's this false family world. Right. 
And this kid obviously doesn't belong here and something's wrong. There's a fly in the ointment. I don't know what's wrong necessarily. But it threw me from the loop that he is uh, the Glenn Close, right? Like, yeah, it throws yeah. me for a loop. Right. So that that was a weird one to me because his actual plot by the end of the movie, right? So it's revealed after the kid's in the hospital. The first son goes in and he seems fine, but he, he's paralyzed essentially. That he's like, I'll make this as quick as I can, right? Because he gets stood up. There's actually a great scene in the diner. When Martin gets stood up and he's calling, where are you? Where are you? Are right. you in a surgery? Where are you? What could be more important than this? Meeting me. And you could tell this, like, for the first time, uh, Colin Farrell's not falling in line and he's getting, like, agitated, right? Well, now the kid's right. in the hospital and, he, and he's like, meet me in the cafeteria. And he pretty much tells him, like, hey, uh, because you killed my dad, you're going to have to pick one of your family members to die or they'll all die. Uh, it's on you. This is as close as I can think of to justice. Yeah. And it's like, oh, shit, that's a huge 53-minute bombshell. Right. I'm like, that's not really like a midpoint type moment. That's, you know, the second act. Like, oh, here's what the movie will be about now. Uh, it, it threw me off, though. I, I didn't quite understand what their relationship was the first time. I remember being a little befuddled. And then once it's revealed that he's doing this, I was like, what? is happening with this kid that he's able to pull a fast one on all of these doctors yeah, and make these people paralyzed. Like, did they ever give any hint as to what that was? No. And I, 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 I wrote it down too. I'm like, where, how does any of this happen? Like, that's the thing that's like the most, that's the thing that's kind of difficult for me, but that I just sort of like, that's the one I got to give. Like, that's the crazy you know thing. I'll say this though. The more I've been pondering it before we recorded, I think it's the best way to go because I think any drug you say, everyone Googles it and it's like bullshit. Right. Just saying. Oh, it's shown up in a blood test. The way it is is it plays as if there is some kind of greater uh, kind of cause karma, right? At play. Well, because I was sitting there, I was thinking about it. I was like, is it in the gifts? Maybe it's like he tainted the gifts he gave the kids. Well, at one point, he tries to give Nicole Kidman a glass at his house, and she doesn't drink it. So I didn't know. And then right. you're like, he has to. He would have to keep giving it to him, presumably. Also, what what would it be that wouldn't be detected in a blood test? I think it's actually better they don't necessarily yeah. try hard to make it scientific. No, because it just plays to this greater like you know he's kind of this devil. I, uh, I like you know, the idea that on he the is shoulder of the of, family. I like the idea that. It's it's strange, but I was thinking about it too, and I like the idea that um, Martin's grief and his like not just like Martin's grief and his yearning for the truth because it takes a lot. To, like, look when people die on the table, they're not you're just gonna offer up like, oh yeah, he died, and like there's nothing we could do. Like th- that this guy researched what happened. Like he was trying to figure out what happened to his dad, and he's like, I found out that like my dad didn't die on impact. Like my dad died on the table. Like all this so on and so forth. Like. There's stuff that he had to figure out, so I like the idea. But that also, all of how it, like, he ever would have figured out that Colin Farrell had been drinking and this and that, it kind of gives right. him a. I like a the bit idea of a supernatural prowess. Right, I like the idea that all of this sort of like combines into essentially this. Just it's it's like passing. Like to me, those gifts are almost like. Um, oh damn! There's another movie where someone gives someone a gift. It's almost like Drag Me to Hell. You know how she like gives her the yes. the button, and it's like a curse essentially. Like that to me is yeah. what it is, is he gives those kids gifts, but they're essentially the curse, the curse of like having a father like Colin Farrell in this case. Yeah. And there's a great scene at the end when the, the girl crawls to the basement, right? Oh my she's God, like, dude. Martin, like just you make me better and we'll get out of here and no one will know. Yeah. And uh, she starts throwing like the dog's balls at him and he's just unflinching, unreacting. And she's just like, try harder. Try hard. Like, she even believes. And she's seeming... Like, at one point, he says, come to the window, and she can stand up and walk, and the brother's like, hey, I want to walk. And then right, he fucking yeah. falls on the <laughs> So they, they also kind of give credence to this supernatural element of Martin's impact, which is weird. Right. Um, I thought it was... Actually, that's one of the things in the movie I liked. Like, his, his entanglement with Colin Farrell's daughter becomes really fascinating to me. Yeah. Because there's that scene in the room where they're kind of laughing, where he d- tells, like, this, I guess it's a joke. He says something in French, and then he's like, but it sounds like, but. And they, like, giggle together. <laughs> right, right. 
And it seems like they're getting along. And then he, uh, you know, she whips the dress off and goes into cadaver foreplay, which I guess is like handed down from woman to woman in some kind of oral tradition. (laughs) Like when you meet a man you like, lay there like you're a dead body. Lay there as if you are a dead body and he will come to you. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this moment of him kind of where you can see Martin feels like he's almost like, oh, like nice. But then he leaves, right? And he never reciprocates her. I lo- She's like, I love you so much. He never reciprocates. Right. And there is a moment watching that. I was like, wow, he's he's in this where you feel like he could just be happy with her, right? Like he could just be with the daughter and join this family, you know, because the thing that seems to spark his revenge is what he's lost. You're like, he could be a part of what they have. Right. You know what I mean? Through just normal grieving and moving on and dating this girl whatever uh and you see right. him immediately like no it, it's kind of a lady snowblood right like it'll it'll destroy my mission right and he fucking runs and then one of the next times we see them we never really see them have an intimate moment again it feels like because after that it's come to the window right it's no more motorcycle rides with no helmets right then it's you know she's crawling on fucking her legs please help me realizes he won't and then crawls through the neighborhood trying to escape that is fucking brutal man Um, that that relationship is very fascinating to me in this movie i mean what's fascinating about how this goes is like after he reveals and all this shit starts going down like it's it's amazing like the caustic element of these characters that starts out as like kind of goofy and funny because like again we start the first half of the movie just get kind of like why are they talking like they're in a fucking like you know, infomercial for how medical supplies work. Like what's going on? <laughs> like, that's like the thing. And I remember thinking that when I was seeing the lobsters, like, why are they talking like this? This is so fucking weird. What is going on? And I'm sitting there watching that. And then like, this is the thing that I love about sacred deer as it like develops from like his style from the lobster is like, he took that element that we all thought was so kind of clever and funny in the lobster. And instead it was like, I'm going to show you something that's unsettling and why people who act like this are unsettling, but also like, I'm going to take this thing that you're familiar with and turn it on its head. So people who go see that movie are like, Oh, I liked the lobster. Cause I thought that too. And then I saw this movie. It was like, wow, this movie's incredible, but it's incredible for completely different reasons. Like it's excessively changing what makes you unique and utilizing it to make your style fit this story. You want to tell, this is a straight up psychological thriller. So what's fascinating is taking that style from The Lobster, which is much more kind of like, I mean, I think kind of like a farcical comedy almost, and Mm -hmm. making it work for a psychological thriller. Colin Farrell's caustic nature, especially towards the end, like that scene where she's making the bed and he walks in and he goes, Bob's eyes are bleeding. Like, okay. And she literally, she, she, she doesn't like run to her kid either. She literally finishes making the bed. And then the next fucking scene is the ending scene. And you're like, Jesus Christ, do any of the people, nobody cares. But like, everyone's all, just, like, giving all up. All of these characters, right, this this is something they do, because there's a moment when he confesses. Yeah. Uh, the first time we see Colin Farrell slip, right, like, the, the mask of the good doctor, the good husband slips, is when he goes to the house, and he's banging, and he's like, open the fuck I fucking door. fucking love that. Oh, he's my like, God. I'll break it down, and I'll fuck you and your mom just the way you want it. And he's losing it, right? We yeah. can tell. Oh, my God. Speaking of, we forgot about... Okay, the truly I, worst meet, meet cute in the movie I, is when he sets up the the date with his mom Alicia Silverstone I, and the doctor. I was going to bring it up earlier. I didn't know I didn't want to just like stop us dead in our tracks, but I have to bring up Alicia Silverstone. Worst not not just worst meet cute, but also like worst date movie. Like you were just sitting there watching Groundhog Day and then like the kid, yeah. like, I'm going to get up so you guys can fuck. Like they don't even and like it's the most uncomfortable. And she's like what what's my play? Oh, yeah, my yeah. dead husband loved your hands. Let me fucking thumb suck. But it's like, <laughs> I won't let you leave until you try my tarts. Like in her best Heston voice. And it's like, damn, lady. Dude. <laughs> I haven't seen Alicia Silverstone in years, too. And that's like the crazy thing is she did this in this most. The way she. Oh, she acted the shit out of the scene, too. Like. Yes. She did it in this most desperate, like, not like sad, tragic way, but just like desperate, psycho- psychotic, like. Psychotic's the right word because this is right? pre Bates, right? Yeah, yeah. Where it's like he wants this more than I do. The way him and his mom must fucking lay in bed and talk about fucking Colin Farrell. Oh Pearl God, yeah. Becomes a terrifying subthought as the movie goes on. You're like, 
wait, so they, they sussed this out? Yeah. Like, they talked it out. Oh, after ew, Yeah, and ew. then he comes in with, like, the heart palpitations. Like, I was so worried. I slept with my mom last night. You're like, that must have been really uncomfortable. And I'm glad we didn't have to watch that scene in this film. <laughs> like, that's the thing I thought about. That's the thing I thought when I was watching. I'm like, man, I wonder if Yorgos Lanthimos shot that. And he's like, nah, this is going to be way too uncomfortable for everyone. I'm like, that's like, what you, know you what? chose I'll give to them cut like, out. Yeah. I'll give them palpable weirdness, which is Colin Farrell <laughs> showing his body hair to this creep yes. after what just happened. There's no scene that is not horrible in its own way. Absolutely. No, you're not wrong. That's what makes the movie but so I, interesting. I fucking love the way that because this is the thing, right? So to get back to where we were going, there's, there's a point that feels like the midpoint of the movie, which is he unburdens himself to Nicole Kidman. Right. And this one, he's like, of course, it was the anesthesiologist. Like, they can kill people. A surgeon can't. And he's like, we should go to the cops. And Nicole Kidman's like, no cops. Like, what's the good in that? And that's that's a weird moment there. But from there, we see Nicole Kidman in the room, right? Like, taking the phone from her daughter, uh, staring out the window, looking for. And this is a weird one, right? Because Martin calls her to the window. And they can't see them. And as Nicole Kidman looks out, she can't see him. And Martin's not where we saw that he was previous. Right. Um, almost again, giving him this supernatural quality. It feels like so Nicole Kidman feels like she's on a mission, right? So then she goes and, and talks to Dr. Bald and it's pretty much <laughs> like, I'll Bald. fucking jerk you off to tell me what happened on that. Oh table. my God. He just, I love that. He just might lie. He might, he says the exact opposite of Colin Farrell, right? So we never know which of them is telling the truth, but she's like, this is a great Nicole Kidman acting moment, too, where she, she gets the information she wants. Whether it's believable or not, we don't know, and we don't know if she believes it. Right. She jerks him up, and then he goes, uh, and she just fucking stares for, like, five seconds in contempt Ugh. down at his, like, area and the nut. Like, the sad fucking, like, off the suffering of your children and family nut. And Nicole Kidman's just like, ugh. But she's also has like a faint <laughs> whiff of like pride. Like yeah. I did that. Yeah. I still got that nut despite how fucking furious I am. I just I was like, she's giving me so much to absorb in just this fucking contempt. Just like five state. seconds and you get that. That's right, pig lay in it. Like this whole just like oh, enjoy your feel. That'll do, pig. That'll do. <laughs> no, yeah. Like a real gross babe. Oh yeah. That's for sure no, what it is. Nicole Kidman is my favorite actress. Like everything she's in, I love and she's awesome in this. Um, but there's a point where even that storyline stops and we learn that she's not the caring mom. Every character hits a point in the movie where Martin becomes more. Yeah. So there's this moment with her and her husband in the kitchen. And this is like the ultimate power move when she's like, Shut the fuck up about mashed potatoes. Like, you did all this. You're killing our whole family. She even goes and sees Martin and asks I why. love that scene. When she, I mean, yeah, it's oh. basically, it's an act of contrition. She's like, tell me, like, why does my family deserve this? Like, that's the thing I love is like. But this is the great moment, right? And this is where it all starts to spiral out of control. When he says, when he tells the everyone eats spaghetti the exact same way story. Right. And it seems so silly, but it it's this awesome kind of idea, right? That, you know, I don't know if this is right or wrong. This just is it, man. Right. Everyone's got a everyone's got a shot at becoming me, right? Becoming the victim of tragedy. Right. And we see her start to shift, right? She's really mad at her husband because she knows what's coming. And he's fucking flip out. He's like, oh, I'll fucking break everything saying I'm looking for pubes and shit. Uh, when clearly he's at fault, like no contrition, like I'm just mad, right? You know that you're ruining my fucking nice steak and my polo shirt. I'll smash everything and blame you. <laughs> From there, when Colin Farrell slips in that moment, every character spends the rest of the movie appeasing him. Yeah, and this this is the weird turn that they make uh, for the finale that I thought was so fucking fascinating. Colin Farrell at least did wrong. We don't know that he's the one that killed this kid's dad, right. but he was drinking. Yeah. Right. And doing wrong. And this kid believes it's him. So that might be all that matters. It could have been the anesthesiologist. Right. Right. The sad, pathetic. Uh, hey, I want a favor, but I'll choose jerk off instead of any other sexual <laughs> act. You fucking bald 12 year old. Fuck. I hate that guy. Anyways. Whoa. Bill Camp knew what he was doing. Smart. Well, not way to go. I hate his character. I don't. He hate didn't him. separate artists from art. He didn't over ask. Very important wrong wrong i'd be like do you want to save your family 
We're getting wet. If I was a creep, not in real life. I got a lot. I, I got a lot of. I got a lot of respect for that move. Didn't over ask. Just got the hand Gross. job. Just a dry hand job. Mad respect. He knew fucking, it was going to be dry. He knew oh, you prepared himself. Like an 11 year old who found his first like fucking swimsuit issue. You pathetic bastard. Gross. Truth. Anywho, go for it. What I love that they set up is they set up Colin Farrell now as this false idol, right? And the way that this kid idolized his dad and how they ate spaghetti, Colin Farrell becomes a false idol where every single member of the family spends the end of the movie trying to uh, present their case for why Colin Farrell should kill someone else. Yeah. And the most startling moment of the three, I mean, they're all shocking, but when Nicole Kidman tries to get on top and then she's like, oh, that's not it. Let me lay down and do cadaver style. And then she just crawls up to him. And she says, the logical choice is we need to kill one of our kids. We can try again, right? We can yeah. get another kid. Oh, my God. In that moment, right, the, the woman we think we know is a strong, good woman, right? He's already been a dick to her in the kitchen. He already did the, hey, if this were eyeglasses, I'd want you to talk, but shut up, not real doctor. <laughs> so we yeah. think she's like the strong woman who's going to set this right. She's going to fix her husband's sins somehow. Right. And in that moment, it all comes crashing down where she's like, oh, this game is inescapable. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to lose. And it is a shocking fucking turn in this movie. Right. To hear her say, kill one of the kids. Sure. Oh, no. And, and this is the thing I noticed the second time. Each parent clearly likes one of the kids better. Yes. Right? Like the dad is constantly like, did you water the fucking yard? Don't water the yard for him. Water the yard. But yet his daughter, he's like, don't worry. I already walked the dog for you. It's great. Right. Cut your fucking hair. Like, they all have a favorite. And so Nicole Kidman's is startling. The kid crawling to cut his hair is horrendous. Oh, God. And then him just like, Dad, I think I want to be like you. Mom, it is stupid. You're right. <laughs> it is the groveling. It's so. It's so uncomfortable. It's, it's so like, miserable because it puts us in the smallest. Well. Lois scum. But the thing is, is Colin Farrell seems to like it. Well, yeah, like that's the thing that's unfortunate. Like, that's the thing that's so uncomfortable about this is like you are in like the audience is not only in this. Like you're subconsciously making your choice of who you totally think should die. But then on top of that, you're also having to watch Colin Farrell kind of relish in this uh, unholy union of. Death, like, like death by pro. I don't know, death by, uh, death. By, it's not even death by revenge. Like, just this, like, this is it. No, 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 no. This is because Colin Farrell captures Martin and is roughing right, him up, right? right Trying right. to pretend to be the dad. Nicole Kidman just lets him go and says it wouldn't matter anyways. Yes, yeah. complete surrender. And what we see is that we now know that this movie is going to end where someone is going to be unfairly exterminated and punished because of Colin Farrell's deeds. And we right. see Colin Farrell actively liking that his family is lubing him up, right? Yeah. He loves that this is happening. And so the kid has the shocking haircutting scene. The daughter is like a real piece of shit. Like, well, it's not because we don't love you, little brother. <laughs> it even does the, can I have your MP3 player when you're dead? Ugh. Right. And then Colin Farrell going to the school to ask the principal, if I had to pick one, who's more likely to be <laughs> successful? Um, we see Colin Farrell saying, okay, I am willing to do this. Because I don't remember a scene where he goes to Martin on bent knee, crying and breaking down George Bailey style, right? No. Like, please give them the life. It is me. You're right. No. Like, kill me. That kill me. scene. Colin Farrell never has that fucking no, scene. That scene was reserved for Nicole Kidman, and it's like the opposite of what that would be. Like, Nicole Kidman went to basically... Like, what I love about that whole beat, because that to me is like the turning point in the movie, actually, is the whole time. You're That's like, when you're totally like, oh, fuck, I am down now. Right. When like, Nicole Kidman drops that fucking bombshell, you know it's going to be. Right. Awesome like, basically what it is, is Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman basically reveals the entire conceit of the movie. Like, that's the thing I love about the way this movie plays out is like, there's no like, this is the most literal version of the story. And. Nicole Kidman reveals the entire conceit of the movie, and Barry Keogh is like, "Yeah, I don't know, man. It's just it's got to be done. It's just like yeah. he says. It's like it's some it's some form of justice." And you're and she doesn't like grovel or cry or be like, "Why? Why me? Why me?" She literally 
makes a plan. She decides for that she's going to look out for herself. Like that's the crazy thing, and that's what I love about the whole thing <laughs> is literally oh, the yeah. cards are on the table in that scene, and the rest of the movie is just a ticking t- clock, watching like which one of these fucking poor bastards is going to get it. Because right, you know well, it's not Colin Farrell. That's what makes this so memorable and amazing is you're like, oh, now we're completely off the rails. Yeah. And this is different than how these movies end, right? This isn't going to be, um, you know, them fighting Glenn Close into the bathtub and all that shit. No, like, no, no. You fucking killed Bugs Bunny. Right. It's not that. This is every single person is out for themselves. Right. Um, well, it's not just that either. This is an interesting like- beat too, right? Because Colin Farrell's plan for how he's going to kill, right? Oh he God. tries to pass it off that he's not the bad guy. Right. And that I'll just duct tape you guys. His son's eyes are bleeding. He's like, I better just wrap him in duct tape and get this over with. Right. Puts pillowcases on them because, you know, then he can't see them. Even <laughs> like, though, that works because yeah. he can still see the bodies. Even though he totally tied them uh, up and knew where they were. Right. And then he puts a ski mask on. He spins twice. And this is the dumbest thing. So you're like, just math and physics. Yeah. The amount of square feet in that circle, right? Whatever the distance of that circle is, diameter-wise, the people take up a very small fraction of that footage. How many times would you have to spend before you hit someone? Way fucking more than three. Right. And so there's a beat where Colin Farrell seems to stop, freeze, glance, and then he pulls the mask down, spins, and shoots. My contention is, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, is that he, in that moment, chose his son. The one that he liked the least, the movie told us, and it was not a random shooting. The first two were an act to alleviate guilt, and then he willingly fucking shot his kid, his son, and killed him. Mm, I think that gives- there's no fucking chance you shoot someone in three shots. I think and this that- could just be that could be a movie conceit, right? Like we can't just have him shoot. I think that gives times. Colin Farrell a lot more credit than I'm willing to give him for this movie. <laughs> But I see what that you're saying. That doesn't make him a good guy. No, I'm not. No, no, no. This see, is this not is like the a, important a thing. graceful gonna, old yellow. I wanted, I wanted to get to this earlier. This is something really important about the movie itself is that Colin Farrell, the reason Colin Farrell has to choose his kids and the reason Colin Farrell has to choose between his three, the three people he cares about the most in this world is because there is only three good people in the movie and they're the ones that are tied up at the end of it. Like, Colin Farrell's a piece of shit. Bill uh, Camp's a piece of know. shit. I don't know. Nicole Kidman is pretty fucking scandalous by the end, dude. But. Her hands but, are covered in blood and sad nut. We know that for a fact. Her hands, are, her hands might be covered in blood and sad nut, but she herself is a victim. Like, Colin Farrell is sure. a fucking bad guy. There's no doubt yes. about it. He is the villain of this story. Barry Keogh is well, basically. I think, to your point, right, is that at the end, he's choosing the only person he really cares about is himself. Right. But, but and that's why he does the fake act. But I think he chooses his son. No, I fully agree. Like this movie should have been retitled. Really? What about Bob? Really? Like that's. I mean, like <laughs> poor Bob gets shit on the entire flick. But regardless, like I agree. Like there's a piece of me that I think it's interesting. Like it's wishful thinking, I guess, because this movie essentially rests on your ability to suspend disbelief enough to go, well, yeah, these kids just sort of have mystical ailments, and that's part of life. Like, well, right. You have so, to take out also, like, how do they explain the bullet hole in the kid? They could have just let him die. Right. But he had to choose. You couldn't just wait it out. Right. So but you, you take that out. Right. This is the thing. It, and, and I think it's earlier in the movie where Martin says in the basement, he's like, you know, you are not stupid. Like, I know that about you. If I had just met you, you might be able to convince me you were stupid. And that's when he does the great. He bites. Colin Farrell and then bites himself in this fucking stunner of a moment, right? Right. And then he's like, don't you get it? Don't you get it? It's metaphorical. And you can see Colin Farrell kind of subsiding. Like, that's his Nicole Kidman moment where he's like, oh, fuck. Like, I won't beat this guy. Yeah. But, because that, and, and I think that factors into that ending where you're like, there are 55 ways he could have randomized that, right? Draw a stall, uh, a straw, roll a dice, pack a card, spin a bottle. You know what I mean? Uh, whoever well, the like, gun came closest to the first time, I'll just shoot that one. Well, the fact that he kept it up and then ended on the sun, that felt like, and to me, that's an important distinction, right? As an audience member, we have to decide, was that a truly random act? Because then that implies some small level of mercy, even though it's still a murder 
of someone who is innocent. Well, I think you got to look at it two ways. Like you have to look at it's right. The, the main thing you have to look at is the look on his face at the end uh, when he lifts the ski mask up and sees what he's done. Because there's yes, two ways to look at that. Unaffected. If you're going to be this similar, well, he. It's more like this strange. Like the look on his face was not in affection or anything like that. To me, it's two different things. It's either you decide that he's. Oh my God! It's the sun. It's Bob. I can't believe I did that. Not my interpretation. My interpretation is the shock that he actually did it. That's the interpretation. I was like the shock that he actually really? hit someone. Really? Okay. Absolutely. Because when I see that, that to me is he made the choice. He did it. He lifts the mask, and what I see because that's the thing. This is just like the Nicole Kidman small cry moment, right? Right. He seemingly has no emotion. I think what we see in that moment is relief. He's like, I'm done. Like, I moved on. And we see them the next scene in the diner. And obviously, things are not okay. But in that moment, I think he made a choice and was happy with this choice and happy right. this whole I, thing was over so they could go back to the false I'm not saying, pretense of family. I'm not saying he's shocked by what he did. I'm saying sure. I'm, I, what I'm talking about is the shock that he actually hit something. Like, I think that's the shock on his face. Right, but that's not – I read it as I picked that motherfucker. Oh, no. Knew, he right? definitely <laughs> picked him. Like, this is something yeah. really important. He definitely picks Bob. The fact is he's shocked that he shot him. In the, He's shocked that he even got a hit. That's the shock. Not that, oh, see, I... My theory is is that he could actually see through that mask the whole time. Because I actually went and got a beanie and pulled it down over my eyes. You can still see, like, figures. Sure. No, I, I don't I think, think there's any... It. I don't think there's any yeah. debate that he chose Bob because Bob was bleeding out of his eyes and there's no way he was going to survive anyways. I think the I think it was just like, bitch, I told you to cut that hair. <laughs> I think the fact is... I think the shocking thing... I think what he's... The look on his face at the end is like, wow, I actually hit him. Like, that's what I think it really is. Right. And then, because, yeah, and then the scene after, like, obviously things aren't okay, but they're totally fine. They're in a fucking diner together. And, yeah, you have to totally gloss over, like, dead body procedures. Yeah. All that's <laughs> like glossed over. They got rid of the bullet hole. They're in that, that diner, but... and then the last thing that you see is um, Martin walking into the diner. Like, nothing else. Like, nothing's happened. Well, they They do the Sopranos finale, right? Where it's. Martin walks in and him and the girl have like this intense, like it almost looks like scanners, right? Yeah. Staring. And she's like drenching her fries and ketchup like a psychopath, right? Like not <laughs> making a dipping pool. Right, right. But putting them on top where they're uneven and gross. Ugh, so gross. And then Martin is like, Ugh, he's trying to fucking drink out of this straw like he's never seen the technology before. <laughs> and they're just having this stare down and the parents seemingly don't acknowledge much and they all just get up and leave. Right. Um, I, I don't I don't know what I'm to glean from that ending. The the question I had is is it really over or is now is the family because they all knew the game they were playing is they made their pleas not to die, right? Right. Are they okay with how it ended up and they're trying to fucking move on? Or in a way did Martin create another Martin and uh, she's going to come no. for him? Uh-uh. Yeah, that's. I mean, it felt false not to a me chance. too because she it was just that's, haunting her brother about. Oh, I'll have your MP3 player when you're dead. No, no, that's too much to glean from a very simple story about revenge. Like revenge has been taken. There's no revenge to be had because revenge has been taken. You took something from him. He took something from you. That's the end of the story. Like that's what everyone always thinks. That's a strange thing. Like people don't seem to understand is like revenge stories have to balance out. You can't take two people from one person, one person from another. Like that's like the thing that Martin really embellishes the entire movie is this is balance. Like, that's the thing I like the most about the movie. I I think that's always been a naive take. Like that's the old, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Right. Cause they did take Nicole Kidman and the daughter both lost something unjustly. Like if he had taken their dad, then it's balance. Right. The fact of how they did it and he's still there just, you know, fucking rocking polos, smoking cigs and going to the watch store. That is not balance. I, you know what I mean? That Jeff Goldblum would say this is chaos. Run him up. Well, it's about ba- it's <laughs> it's balanced for Martin. Like, that's the important thing. Like at the end of the story, this is not about balance for this is not about balance for the universe. This is balance for Martin. Like, right. Martin was 
someone who Martin loved was taken away from him, so he's going to take away someone that Steven loves. That's the balance. It's not an eye for an eye. It's an eye. It's right. But what I'm saying arm. is that that leaves two two more people who could be bitter and seeking revenge. Right. If he had sought revenge on the man, right? Because this is yeah, this is that great scene in Kill Bill, right? Where uh, Uma Thurman's looking at the daughter and she's like, "Hey, if you're still mad as hell when you're my age, you know, come find me. And if you can take me out, like you've earned that." Yeah, thing. but that's Quentin Tarantino that's wanting balance. to make another that's Kill Bill balance, movie. Right? That's Quentin Tarantino. This is different, though. This right, is... but what I'm saying, we did a whole month on revenge, right? Like, right. There, there is revenge. Like, if you kill my ma, I need to come kill you, not your fucking kid, right? Like, I mean, I guess you could say there's nah. two different levels of cruelty, right? Are you surviving and now you have to deal with the guilt of the lost person and that's worse? Or are you dying? My argument is that Colin Farrell is getting a better deal here because he only truly cares about himself and not as much Bob. I mean, yes, by the interpretation of it's, that, it's a quibble. I'll give you this. It's all a quibble. It is. But by that interpretation, of course, Colin Farrell gets the better. Like you, it, what I'm saying is you're reinforcing the point to make your argument work, which it does. But on the other hand, I also think that Martin's Martin's point was to take someone that Steven loved. And that's what he did. That was the balance he was looking for. He wasn't looking right. for eye for an eye. He was literally looking for I'll take your hand because I'll take your hand because you took mine. It's not right. life. There, there are, there it's are just movies gonna be I inconvenient. Think that, but this is what I mean. I think this is why the movie's interesting, right? Is because it's full of somewhat inconsistencies. And I think that is very true to life. Is I think Martin's this kind of scorned kid. And I think he has some kind of he thinks this is the right way, but it, it doesn't quite add up. So what it does is it, it doesn't give the audience this sense of justice. It gives us this sense of, well, that's fucked up. Like, that's not how it should work. And every character in the movie at the end seems just like, well, that is how it worked. And we're walking off into the sunset to go have cadaver sex. And I think that is a, a strength of the movie, right? Because this is what I, there there are movies where you know, the righteous anger and this and that and pointing at certain targets. I think this is just kind of saying like, you know, I think it's what Martin said about the eating. Everyone eats spaghetti the same way, man. Like at the end of the day, we all just get our lives fucked up at random. You know, and it, it takes sure. Martin away from this. He's not a Hannibal Lecter. He's just this, uh, you know, fucking ghost of Christmas past, as it were. No, I don't think he's some... No, there's no Hannibal. No, that's exactly what he is. It's a it's a ghost. It's a D-book. It's a relic. Like, that's the idea. I, I don't think there's anything about this movie that... Something about this... It's interesting. Like, this movie seems so literal to me on so many levels, but there's yeah. also so many steeped metaphors that you have to, like, unpack <laughs> a little bit. It's fascinating. Well, like, I fucking, love, thing I I fucking love the way this movie's made. Right. But in, in Act 1, right, what I appreciated this time is... It feels like we're being rolled in, right? Like, I guess A Christmas Carol is a, a good fucking example of this. We're being floated in by another ghost. Like, look at this. And we're being floated into something that feels very staged and not true and not real. Right. Um, so while the movie is seemingly just a very literal tale, we don't trust it. And then it ends with without no. a real justice, without a real bow on it. And we're like what the fuck? Like everything feels wrong. And I think oh, no. that's I, maybe see, as interesting as you can make a, a a movie like this, right? Instead of everything being so fucking poetic and scripted, it's just kind of like, what a fucking nasty world we can live in at times and, and how fucking depraved human beings can be. Uh, And, and I, I think that's a, a fascinating way to do it. And it takes a lot of fucking guts as a filmmaker um, to kind of leave those threads and those, you know, you figure out who you think uh, yeah. got the raw end and who got justice and whatever. Like, you fucking figure it out. Like, almost every revenge movie, even on the shows we did on our curation of that, they all pretty much tie up at the end with a bow. And the person who needed to get revenge got something that felt like justice on some level. Not this yeah. one. Maybe not Billy Jack, because everyone in those cities needed to die. <laughs> Yeah, if anything, no one got justice in Billy Jack because no, we didn't yeah. get to see the end of the hippies. Uh, yeah, if all I mean, the hippies and all the MAGA hats had been fucking barefoot kicked in the face, then you're like, yes, this. 
Yeah. I mean, this movie is just so fascinating because it just, it all is dependent on your point of view. That's what I love the yeah. most about this movie. It is strictly dependent on who you decide early enough in the movie before, before the gauntlet comes down. It's the decision of who you decide to side with. And that's what makes this movie interesting. Right. Well, because it takes so long for us to be told the game, you spend a lot of time with kind of off-putting people. And you start right, but that's what I I'm guess. saying is you decide early before yeah. you know anything what's going on, who is the most sympathetic or who you like the most, and that's the character that you right. feel you – and, like, that's the thing is, like, all of them are almost blank slates because of how creepy and weird they are. So, like, you're like, well, there's literally <laughs> no one here that I find particularly sympathetic or interesting, but as soon as the gauntlets dropped, that's when all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait. Like, I guarantee you you're not going to find a single person who's on Colin Farrell's side. If you have anyone who's on Colin Farrell's side, they're a sociopath and need to be locked up in a mental institution well, immediately. Colin Farrell's the first one that we lose sympathy for because it's like, all right, you're getting your fingers sucked. Why are you hanging out with a creepy teen? And then he has the – when his kid is sick and paralyzed, he takes him into a hallway, essentially throws him on the ground a couple times, and is like, yeah. hey, quit <laughs> being paralyzed or I'm going to cut your hair off and make you eat it. P.S. – my dad got drunk when I was a kid and I jerked him off and it scared me. And it's like, whoa, that is like the most massive uh, villain entrance of all time. <laughs> like, I love the first time also, I saw like, Vader in Star Wars, but maybe, hey, crippled son, eat your hair. P.S. I jerked my dad off. <laughs> that is coming in hot. Also, like shoving <laughs> shoving donuts in the kid's mouth. Like, it's the whole thing. Oh, like, I as forgot soon about as the that. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of aggressive behavior early for uh, a lot of aggressive behavior immediately from Colin Farrell because. I mean, like, it's interesting. Like, it's like all of them have their plea one by one. And Colin Farrell's is so rushed and terrible. You're like, well, he clearly didn't want to save either of those kids. But, like, yeah, Nicole Kidman's the only one who, like, actually tries to go and be a nurturer and literally just comes away with, I understand. Like, that's the crazy yeah. thing about Nicole Kidman. She's character. the one person she who just we... understands. No, because when, when it's all revealed, we catch on like, oh. She's going to be our moral fucking boat, tugboat, that's going to get us to a safe harbor. And then she's like, fuck all your boats as long as I'm still afloat, right? She's Rose. Like, I'll push you to the icy depths as well. <laughs> like, I don't give a fuck. I mean, she just did what she she's did what everybody gets to eat hair, but it's bad. She did everything. She did everything that someone who isn't being honest with themselves did. Like, that's really what it is. Like, yeah. if. If this was a different movie, like if this was a movie made by any other filmmaker, this would be about like the bargaining of like this would be about the stages of death. But this is not. This is about people bargaining well, with themselves about whether or not they can survive can basically the, a death a death curse. You can see the bad version of this movie, right? It's a lifetime movie. It's your dad died. I do want to fuck Alicia Silverstone. Uh, I will kill my family. We'll make it look like an accident. Nicole Kidman's like the hardcore like mom bear who saves her kids. Like there are a lot of movies that play out, you know, in a more typical way you could understand. I like that this movie subverts all of these fucking people by the end. I think the end sings. I'm still a little unsold that this was the best way to get the audience in. I think the brilliance of this movie will be undervalued because of that first 30 minutes to me. Like Amy still hates this movie. We saw it in theaters and she's like, that was such a fucking waste of time. Cause she was just like, she was so fucking bored and unengaged by the end. She's just like, I don't buy any of this. And that's, you know, that's a tightrope. Everyone walks. This is the kind of movie that sort of does the usual thing, but then is smart enough to subvert its own genre and say, this is how you actually do that thing you think you want to do. Like it's original because it does the thing. It's original because it takes the genre and does exactly what everyone always says they're going to do with the movie when they don't do when they make a completely conventional flick. That's what I love the most about this movie. Right. Well, I like that the subversion is, is pretty, it's weird because everything feels false in, sterile and cold but in a way it because this is what everyone does right they're like i'll subvert the genre right. and they're like 
The killer is actually a transvestite chihuahua dressed in your grandma's <laughs> yeah. dress. That's you always know, like a, a subversion. A Doubtfire setup, right? It's ridiculous. always something like that, yeah. right? Like, it's a Scooby-Doo level, like, gotcha at the end. That's how they think it's tricky. What I like about this one is it's like you're you're on a path and you think you're starting to figure it out once the game is afoot. Right. And then they just say, you know what? You don't have to try that hard. Like, people are pretty garbage. All of yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they just let us become the monsters that we are. And right. I, I think the ending is so fascinating, man. Um, and honestly, yeah, I'm with you. I think I think it's just it's fascinating filmmaking uh, from a very a very sure minded director who's not afraid to take us to uncomfortable places. And yeah. to me, that I say that all the time on this show. But if you can find something that feels new and fresh and different. Something that you'll remember. Think of all the revenge movies you've ever seen. A lot of them blend together. I feel like this one will always stand out for you. I know it will for me. Oh, definitely. Um, and so I'm glad. I'm glad I watched it again and and kind of found some of the love of that that very long act one. Um, I just think it's a a really fucking interesting and fun movie. I agree. It's, That's it's it, worth guys. That's right. It's always worth a watch if it's on The Alchemist. Uh, that's it, guys. Thank you, Heath. Really good pick. If you're going to kill Thanks. something sacred, do it with style, man. That's what this movie taught us. <laughs> if you like this movie, share it with someone else. They'll be You'll be happy they did. And this is one of those cool movies. It gives you a lot to like, would you, wouldn't you kind of debates. Not wrong. Yeah, and if your friend likes the movie or is even confused or fascinated by it, uh, share the podcast with them, guys. That's how we'll we'll hook them. We'll bring them in. New Alchemist. Our goal is by this time next year to have so many submissions that the stocking will explode with great movies. Please. Uh, we follow us on our social media, guys. We have uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the social media stuff you kids are into. Uh, follow us and share us on your timeline with your friends that you think timelines are they all timelines stories sure uh feeds whatever the fuck they are yeah share it with like, your uh your peeps your your friends your bots uh that you think would be into the show man that's another good way for us to reach out and get more friends into these uh these movie parties that we do you're not wrong. most of all guys if you find us on a directory that allows you to leave a rating and review please take the 10 seconds and do that for us if you like the show we're doing every week it seems silly, and it seems a little annoying, I know, but it makes a huge fucking difference for us, guys. Every one of those is a big deal for us. Trust me. Uh, so please take the time and hook us up if you can. We would appreciate it greatly. Please be cool. Don't make us <laughs> Don't make us rare exports. Yeah, don't suck. Don't sell us no, into uh, white slavery. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Santa slavery or elf slavery. That could have been a good Lord of the Rings sequel. <laughs> Anyways, that's it, guys. We still have the Warriors. We still have uh, the Brood. Yes. Cronenberg's the Brood. And hopefully two double features coming at you by the end of the year. Thanks for joining us, guys. This was an exceptionally fun one for me. Uh, hope you guys found it to be the same. For the Film Alchemist, I'm Josh Griffey. I'm Alex Dandino. Peace. Peace.